Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Hello, friends. Welcome to this episode 100 of the Cyber Guy Podcast. Who'd have thought we'd have got to episode 100? Raise your hand. Nobody? Okay. Fair enough. But uh, again, I want to thank you for downloading, popping in, taking a listen to the podcast. This is going to be an interview only podcast. No news or cyber smart stuff this time around because I have a very special guest. Miguel Clark is uh, with Armor Defense out of Dallas. He is the cyber evangelist there. He'll explain what exactly that means. Cool title, though. Uh, and he is a also a retired FBI supervisory special agent. Uh, him and I met at FBI headquarters back in the mid to late 2000s. Uh, it's a great conversation that we have. He's got some great insight. Um, and if you want to hear what cyber leadership is, this is the guy you want to listen to. So take a listen uh, and uh, tell your friends. So it's my honor to welcome to the podcast, Miguel Clark, retired supervisory special agent with the FBI, current cyber evangelist for Armor Defense and coming to us from the great state of Texas, Miguel Clark. Miguel, thanks so much for taking the time to come on. Uh, it's great to be here with you today. All right. So let's talk about your career path. What it, as and. Everybody I talk to in the, who are former bureau, we, we always get these questions. So I always feel like I might as well ask them because you've answered them a million times. So what'd you do prior? Let's start with what'd you do prior to the bureau? Because no one comes in unless you're Scott Augenbaum and you had no other thing in life and you had to go be the guy at the mailroom first before you became an agent. You weren't FBI first. So what'd you do before the bureau? Uh, I was in sales, actually. So um, graduated from the University of Kansas and uh, I started working at a, a new car sales shop. So it was uh, selling Nissans. And I went from there over to Wells Fargo, uh, which was Norwest Financial back in the time. So it was, uh, I was a credit manager for them. So sales um, moved into uh, industrial sales um, with a company called Valmont Industries, where we sold uh, steel tubing, pipe, that kind of thing. Um, and and then went into the bureau. So not really a smooth transition from one to the other. And, and actually it's a little bit of a funny story. Um, my path into the FBI uh, involved alcohol. Mm. Um, I, I told a joke at a party in Nebraska where I was living at the time. And I told that joke in front of uh, a person who ended up being, uh, who was a, a prosecutor for the state of Kansas. And he called an AUSA and that AUSA knew an SSA and that SSA was responsible for recruiting. And, uh, uh, one of the agents working for him actually called me about two weeks later at my job in Kansas City. So I was in Nebraska, I traveled to Kansas City and said, hey, I heard you're interested in uh, joining the FBI. Why don't you come down and let's have a conversation? So it was uh, very much like the FBI reaching out to me. So what was the joke? Uh, the joke was... Um, I was not having a great time where I was working and I just said, I don't know, maybe I'll just go be an FBI agent or something, ah, you know, like the, nice. thing that, <laughs> that thing that you do. Yeah, sure. Why not? What, let's go. Well, yeah, hey, how least, hard could it be? At least you didn't say maybe I'll join the Secret Service. So it could have been worse or during DHS. <laughs> with with no, no disrespect to my Secret <laughs> no, Service brothers and sisters. Of right? course not. But you know, you know the joke about what FBI agents and Secret Service agents all have in common. And what is that? They both apply to the FBI. <laughs> yes, I have heard, heard that one. And uh, there's some truth in that as well. <laughs> yeah. I think in every FBI class, there's a former uh, someone from yes. service. Yeah, or DEA. For my class, I, had, I think I had a D, former DEA agent and stuff. Yeah. But, so where was your first office? You got in the bureau. Um, so I, let me ask a question. So when the recruiter called, 
Um, yes. How serious were you about the joke as far as maybe I'll just join the FBI? Was it kind of like I, kind of something I wanted to, you wanted to do and you just kind of threw it out there and it just kind of all happened? Or was it you had no idea, but when they called it, like, okay, maybe I'll think about this? Yeah, so I thought it was the continuation of the joke when I got the call. So oh. you know, I'm like, okay, yeah, well, so this is, this is a good one, right? You, you must have overheard me in this one, and this is not funny. Uh, no, 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 I, I assure you, this is the Kansas City office, and uh, we're very interested in having a conversation with you and, you know, let you know a little bit about the FBI and see if maybe it'd be a good fit for us. So, yeah, I, I took it pretty seriously at that point in time. It's still, I mean, I was... Uh, I had not yet turned 24 at that point in time. Oh. So as serious as a 23 and a half year old can take a potential uh, opportunity to join the FBI, I was about that serious. And so, you were just eligible maturity. too. You were just at the eligibility line. Yeah. So from 23 going on 24, uh, I think my whole process took almost four years when it was all said and done, because I ended up moving back back to Nebraska and, you know, just things kind of fell through the cracks a little bit. And, uh, they called me, I don't know, it was probably about a year and a half later. And they said, Hey, if you're still serious uh, about going into the FBI, then now's the time. Okay. So I picked it up and went forward from there. Where's your first office? Where'd you go? Where were your first assignment? So when you, when it was in week six, everybody got their envelopes. What, what did your envelope say? So another interesting story here. So uh, I actually knew where I was going before I got my envelope mm. uh, because I had a very enterprising ASAC guy by the name of Bob Garrity. So he would go into the system way back then in 1998, uh, our, our text-based system that we had. And um, when you got your orders, you actually ended up getting assigned to the office. So he would check the roles to find out which new people had gotten assigned to the office. And he would know on Monday morning. Uh, orders night was on Thursday. Yeah. So on Monday morning, he had already called to Quantico and said, okay, <laughs> Miguel Clark guy's coming to Dallas. I'm his ASAC. He's going to the Fort Worth office. He's going to work drugs. Um, he's going to be working for, uh, man, I can't remember the name of uh, the supervisor that's going to be working for Dave Israelson. They're going to be working for Dave Israelson. And he had everything pretty much all laid out for me. So I knew on Monday where I was going to be. So orders night was anticlimactic for me. Did you, uh, I assume you, what, where was that on your list? It was in the top 10, you know, back in the day I was a single guy and I thought I might, might want to go to Miami or, mm -hmm. or maybe Chicago or something like that. And, uh, thankfully, you know, the Lord intervened and, and I ended up in Dallas and I, I couldn't be happier with that. So, so you didn't win the pool. I'm assuming. Oh no, not at all. <laughs> so who was, so I always ask this right away. Who was, who, what office won the pool and what number was it for that person? Well, actually, um, in 1998, because I, I was in, in Quantico, uh, went in June of 98. So that was the summer and they had some embassy bombings that were going on there. So we one day, I don't know, it was probably in August, uh, came in, somebody came in, unit chief, I believe. Anybody who wants to change their orders to WFO can change them. So mm -hmm. we really didn't have anybody that won the pool. Like it was in New York City was the office, I think, that would have won the pool. But everybody who did not want to go to New York ended up going to uh, Washington. Interesting. Because you can change your orders, right? Okay. WFO is uh, the case agent for this terrorist bombing. Uh, they need people. And we're going to we're going to fill those people out of Quantico. Wow. OK. So you get to Dallas. Um, you're on the drug squad in Fort Worth. So what was. Yes. How did you how long did you do drugs? How long did you work that violation? set of violations um i worked drugs uh violent crimes first for about a year and then uh drugs for about another year um and then i came over to the cyber squad in 2000 and i 
had no prior training except for the fact that I love computers. I'd built a few of them, uh, you know, toying around with uh, Linux, a Mandrake, a single network firewall. So I'd built my own firewall from an old computer and, you know, had a couple of NICs. And, and so it was just something I was uh, playing around with back in 99, 2000. And so then I was able to come to the cyber squad with that little bit of knowledge. And I assume it was a Nipsey squad, not a cyber squad. Oh, yes. yes. It was Nipsey. <laughs> yes, because I was, on, I was on the Nipsey squad in Charlotte. So it was it made for, you know, you go to a, go to a party and, hey, what do you work? Uh, National Infrastructure Protection Center. I'm going to go over here and talk to this guy because I don't think you're really an FBI agent. Yeah. yeah. And what you do is not really very interesting, except right. in Dallas, uh, the cyber squad is doing more operations than anybody. I mean, mm. more than any of the drug squads or anything like that, because we had crimes against children. Mm -hmm. And so the crimes against children and we were doing, you know, search warrants, 288A alpha, of course, like the, you know, computer intrusions for those who weren't previously in the bureau. Mm. Yeah. And you had some big uh, data centers there too, right? Didn't you have some, some very large hosting companies that a lot of oh. bad guys used, right? Oh, yeah. We had the planet. Right? The planet. Was, uh... Yes, the planet. Right. <laughs> I mean, where else would you go if you were a bad guy? Right. You got to go to the planet. Uh, but interestingly, one of the cases that I had worked was um, uh, John Georgilis, um case. And he was a real bona fide terrorist that ended up going over and actually joining ISIS later on. He ended up being like their number three guy who's their communications uh, operations for, for them. But he started off in Dallas. Mm. So did you work? So 288A uh, is the, the criminal intrusion stat what, yeah. file number for us at the time. The other one was 288B, yes. which was national security. How many of those did you guys have? Because at the time there was no um, split and it was everybody did cyber guys did the cyber stuff. And those were the two cyber things. So um, our Nipsey squad was a security squad up until um, just before September 11th. And so mm -hmm. we had um, all of the FCI, the counterintelligence work as well, that were all combined on the same oh, squad. Oh, so it was... Uh, they split oh, that squad. I got you. Yeah, right. In May of 2001, they split that squad and made a cyber squad and a CI squad um, from that. Uh, so we didn't really have any 288Bs at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, I take that back. We had some, but most of those were uh, terrorists who were using the internet to do web defacements. That was the real right. big yeah, deal back in, in 2000 and 2001. Attrition.org every morning. Go yeah. to attrition.org. So you got hit overnight. Uh, that's good times. Yeah, so that, and they used to assign uh, it, when there was a virus, a new virus that mm -hmm. was announced, you know, the first uh, occurrence in the wild. And that was the office and you were the case agent. Right. What's, so during that, so how long were, so, all right, so you got there in, in 98, um, and then yes. 2000 joined the cyber squad. And when yes. did you, when did you go to headquarters? Cause you were a headquarters body, obviously. So when did, when, when did that happen? I went in 2008. So, um, it was just when, uh, the NCI JTF, the national cyber investigative joint task force had added the N they were just the CI JTF mm -hmm. prior to that. Um, and when I had gotten up there, it was just a unit. So we had all those criminal squads, uh, you know, that were all working criminal. And uh, we had like, I don't know, five or six people that were responsible for the 288Bs. And at some point in time, uh, the AD uh, decided, well, maybe this isn't the way we should run this railroad. And uh, they turned that, uh, that, that unit into a section. Right. Yeah. Cause, um, cause I was, I was there from 2007. We crossed paths during that. I think that's when we met was during that time yes. I was doing the criminal stuff and you were doing the Nipsey, the, not the NCI JTF stuff out in Chantilly. Yeah. 
um, yes. with Brad and John and all those guys, right? And Trent was oh, the, yeah. Trent was the unit chief, or second chief. Did he become second? No, he was unit chief. I don't think he could have been. He couldn't have been second chief because he wasn't ASAC yet. Yeah, so he was the unit chief. He became the assistant section chief. Right. And then we got uh, Gordon Snow for like 10 minutes. Right. Yes. Gordon Snow. <laughs> and then he, you know, not too long after that became uh, the uh, deputy assistant director and then the AD. Right. But a good guy, though. Yep. Good guy to work for. Great stories too. So if you haven't had him on he your does, podcast, he's a great he guy. He does have stories. Yes. He's, 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 he's at Cleveland clinic now, at least that's where he went yeah. after that. So, so yes. what's your, so um, we'll get back to headquarters in a bit. Cause I, my, my fellow headquarter refugees, we tend to talk about our experiences there, but your proudest investigative moment. So um, let me, let me, let me step back a second. So you go to headquarters, I sue on the, under the yep. 18 month program, right? Cause it was still I did. rolling. At the end of that, did you become a supervisor in the field or did you just go back to Dallas and run cases? I became a supervisor in the field, actually. So um, I had a really supportive uh, SAC, um, Rob, Bob Casey, mm -hmm. um, and just phenomenal human being. Uh, and he was like, I, this is, I was the guy he wanted to, to run the national security cyber squad that they were going to start. So the job posted when the job posted, I wasn't eligible by the time it closed, I was, so it was just That's like good. a little yeah. carryover there. And so I, I recognized that as the hat tip that it was. And, and I applied for the job. So it was back in Dallas, right? So you went back to Dallas yes. to run the national security squad. So, um, so you would, I guess you timed out of it at some point. I did well, so I got to move around a little bit because uh, at some point in there, um, that's when they started splitting off uh, the crimes against children mm -hmm. uh, work, and, and so we ended up with not enough people for uh, two cyber squads, and so they were going to have like a crimes against uh, crimes against children squad, and and I had volunteered to take that over, uh, so. Uh, uh, great work, a um, lot of fun to uh, to be an SSA there. Right, we were doing operations uh, three times a week easily, mm -hmm. um, and I got to take care of my people, which is something that I really, it really meant a lot to me. You know, looking after the folks that that do that work, and you know, making sure they're good, recognizing patterns and issues and things when you know you're having to look at that objectionable material every day, uh, and just being able to take care of those folks is something I am very proud of. Great. So, so from an investigative standpoint, so before you became a supervisor, because obviously you, you, you see a lot more investigatively when you're a supervisor, because you kind of got to look at everything. So when you were an investigator yeah. yourself, what was your proudest moment? What was the best case you worked in Dallas as a cyber agent? That so you, as a that, cyber agent. That you can talk about. <laughs> well, um, probably the most impactful was uh, being working cyber uh, during September 11th mm. and in Dallas, right? A lot of folks don't know all the things that Dallas was up to uh, during 9-11. And uh, I remember uh, my boss sending me home as soon as I got to work saying, hey, you're going to work the 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift and getting on that shift and, you know, doing the work. And, and what we did on day one was to go through all the passenger manifests from Sabre. And so, you know, I get home, it's, I don't know, 6 p.m. and I can't sleep and turn on the television. And uh, right before I left, I'd heard, well, the president is is waiting for the FBI to provide the names of the hijackers. Oh, wow. And that was the team that I was working on. Oh. Uh, Monica Segetti, she was one of the, uh, she was one of the uh, supervisor, but she kind of ran that team. She was a senior 13 at the time. And, and that's what we worked on. So to, uh, get ready to go to sleep and, and to listen to the news and have the news reporting on the work that you had been doing 20 or 30 minutes 
prior to that, that that's pretty impactful. So that was one. Um, and then the other one was a 288B case, uh, with, which was with the efforts to protect the uh, F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was pretty cool for me and uh, for my co-case agent, Rob. Uh, going to the Pentagon, D-ring of the Pentagon, sitting there with the the senior civilian from the Air Force, and them saying, "Hey, you know, we we knew about some of this, but we didn't know the extent of all of this." And and what we can see is that from an Air Force standpoint, we're not doing enough, and we need to expand our capabilities. And that was largely because of the work that that we had brought to their attention, working with Air Force OSI on that case. And that's interesting, because back so that would have been what 2004, 2005, 2006 in that time frame before you went to headquarters. Yes. So, yeah, so, so at that um, right, yeah, end of 2004. Yeah. So yeah. at that period of time, I mean, tight the Titan Rain article had come out on Time Magazine about Chinese cyber espionage, right? But the, yes. the, the bureau is traditionally behind a lot of those things. So you would have been on the cutting edge, especially from that case, and. So how did you find, so when you would go out, did you go out to victim companies that had lost some of the data? Did you get to interview some of those CDCs? So with the Joint Strike Fighter, it was primarily working with Lockheed Martin. And we were paired with a a counterintelligence uh, case. Mm -hmm. So CI basically came in and were like, well, you know, we don't understand the cyber stuff. Let's bring in somebody on the cyber side to Mm -hmm. do that. So it was primarily working with, uh, with one defense contractor and then and working with them to you know kind of understand what some of that data was explain what the threat was a little bit more uh in a little bit more detail for them and then to encourage the kind of collaboration that you now see with like uh dib dice uh the defense collaborative investigative sharing environment uh, group out of tc3 so this is obviously this is a this is a tricky case to talk about so i'll, I'll if you can't answer any of these questions feel, don't feel like you have to but so <laughs> okay. how much did you find that connection in that case between the human intelligence collection and the cyber did you find that blending of those two aspects in other words so i'm sure sure there were intrusions or attempted intrusions into Lockheed or some of their subcontractors, but did you yes. also find, did the CI guys find human intelligence collection and, and, and those efforts to either, you know, pay off engineers or, or get into facilities? Did, did you find, was that connection prevalent at that time? Not a connection where we could say that one group in a foreign country was responsible for all of it, but there was enough activity that was taking place to let us know that it was a concerted effort. You know, we called it broad spectrum, right? It's broad spectrum efforts uh, to to take information, to steal information. So mm-hmm. if it were, you know, trying to get people on a visitor list, um, people of a particular nationality, you know, trying to get, you know, get there, apply for jobs, things like that. So you'd see all that stuff in concert. Gotcha. And that's because that's, yeah, because at the time, and, and I guess when you try to explain this to Lockheed, what was the look on their face when you're trying to say, hey, we've got a nation state actor that's trying to steal this information and they're probably in your network. And what was their what was their take on that? Because I got to believe they weren't really prepped for it, I would think, in 2004. Maybe now today, today they would be. But 2004, no one was thinking this way. Well, I think they were very, very receptive to that. Right. So that's the good. Yeah. idea that, uh, you know, that there was going to be foreign counterintelligence activity. I think they were very well prepared. You know, uh, I, th- I think across the country, uh, CI squad has been doing a good job about that. You know, the defensive briefings before people travel overseas, mm-hmm. lots of things that they get them in the mindset that they're going to be 
targeted and, and they should get comfortable with the idea of being targeted. <laughs> right. Uh, um, so yes, but seeing these different techniques and, and, and being able to attribute that to a, an advanced adversary, I think was new, but I think they were very receptive to that. Uh, the other thing is that with Air Force, Air Force is kind of a customer. So with Air Force OSI being there, they're, they're kind of an investigator and kind of, you know, like, hey, we're helping along and, you know, we're just paired with the FBI, uh, but they're also kind of a customer. Mm-hmm. And so if FBI said, hey, we're concerned about this, then everybody in the room had to be concerned about it. So that was very, very helpful. Awesome. So what do you find as the hardest part in the view at during that time when it came to cyber stuff? What was the, well, we're always the, cause I got to believe like, especially for this kind of case, there probably was not a lot of supervision at headquarters that was helping guide you in this particular respect in 2004, when it came to national, you know, nation state related cybersecurity matters. So interestingly, there was, uh, with, with CD, counterintelligence sure. division uh they i think they really understood that and they were much more nimble than than cyber was right i think cyber was very much interested in in control and program management and maybe not as uh comfortable with uh, action against the threat yet right it's like okay no no we need to control these investigations we know need to know what you're doing we need to provide a a headquarters function for the work that you guys are doing and i think that was one of the main things that that they were concerned about not so much like hey here's the larger impact and there might be people who are uh, more interested than fbi cyber division mm-hmm. in this thing and that was that was probably the most significant thing that you know from a challenge standpoint um we met with somebody at the Pentagon and then the person at the Pentagon was like, oh, this is super, this is really, this is really very informational to us. Uh, so I'm going to talk to my boss, who's the secretary of the Air Force. Wait a minute. Um, I've told headquarters that they need to pay attention to this. I have not <laughs> seen the attention they've paid to it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, not too long after that, I, I remember we, um, our SAC got a call from the, uh, from the assistant director of cyber division because the secretary of the Air Force had called the director to tell them about the guys from Dallas and, and what they were doing in that work. Oh yeah. That's a bad, that's bad when you don't, but he didn't, didn't, he didn't know anything about it. Right. Yeah. So he was like, why is it that I did not know anything about this? And I'm like, well, here's our unit chief. And then here is an email that I sent to our unit chief about a month and a half ago saying, Hey, this is the, the value of the work that we do mm-hmm. and we're doing. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to the Pentagon. We've been invited. This is what's going to happen. You need to let management know. You need to let management know. You need to let management know. But nevertheless, we were the two guys from Dallas that ticked off the AD. Which AD was it? Was it Lou Regal? No, it was not. So it was um, actually it was Sean Henry because Sean Henry was the new. AD oh, that oh, so that would have been two thousand seven. So you were yes. you're deep into yeah. So okay. Oh, I wonder who your who was your program manager. <laughs> You don't have to say. I, you know, I probably. You know, I, I, probably I, I, I know say. who it is. I'm, I'm sure I can figure it out. It's, it's one I'm of like sure five people. You know her. <laughs> oh yes, yes. She became a, her own supervisor. She 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 was went back to the headquarters a couple times. Anyway, so yeah, we'll leave that. We'll leave that for. Her. She has not been on the podcast, so that's good. So I, she, I don't have to worry about that. But anyway, so um, that's 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 awesome. Because I, and I will say, Sean Henry would not take that well. I'm pretty sure. 
that. That's for no. sure. <laughs> I was visiting uh, the NCIA JTF where I'd actually applied for the job and uh-huh. I you was know, sitting down and of course we're having a meeting, you know, Mr. Henry kind of walks by and, and then, you know, okay. Yeah. So he, all the people in the room get introduced so on and so forth. Okay. Yeah. Nice to meet you. I'm, you know, Sean Henry, I'm the assistant director of cyber. Like none of us know who Sean Henry is the AD right. of cyber. And so then he walks by and then he takes two or three steps back and he looks at me, he comes back and looks at me and pauses, you know, the way he kind of furrows his brow and looks at you. Yep. And you're like, he's like, Dallas, right? <laughs> yes. Hmm. And walks off. I'm like, all right, well, so <laughs> I may not be long for this job now. The Sean <laughs> Henry, I'm on Sean but you ended up, yeah, he had to sign off on your promotion. So you got, you got back there. So that's good. Fair enough. So how did you yes. find your headquarters time? So you went, so you went in middle of 2008, you show up at the NCI JTF. It's still new. It's still very, yes. very, very nascent. One unit at the yes. time, still one unit, right? Or what had you split into yes. two? Still one unit, so five, so or, five or six. We split into two in 2009. So okay. I had been there probably about six months. Yeah. So how did you find that? Because you weren't at Hoover. You were at an offsite in Chantilly. So you had a little different yes. experience than, than the folks that had to go downtown. Um, so how did you... Did you find that to be better, worse, different, or significantly better? Right? <laughs> significantly better. Uh, I had an, an apartment. My wife and I. She moved up there with me, and we had an apartment. It was like two or three miles away Ugh. from Chantilly, maybe four. I was right across the street from Dallas Airport, and so uh, before they opened twenty eight up there, and you know, kind of made things, you know, kind of widened that and finish that project. It used to take twenty five minutes to get to work, and then after they fixed that, it would take about between 15 and 17 minutes to, to get to work. Mm. So yeah, I did not get the full headquarters experience, you know, slugging and, you know, mm-hmm. r- riding to work with strangers. No, I, I didn't get that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, well, that's a, that's a conversation for a different time. Cause I did not have that same experience needless to say, but anyway, that's okay. So obviously FBI leadership has been pretty widely talked about in the news lately but let's talk the oh, positive yeah. let's talk the positive because I, I don't i had a positive leadership experience in the bureau for the for the most part from a, from a headquarters perspective because i yeah. like you my goal was always how can the people who i am managing how can i keep them out of this crazy headquarter bubble of crap right so when you came out especially when you came when you went out to be a field supervisor and you had program in a box or trp or whatever the flavor of the month was for from a program management standpoint the sapper, all that kind of stuff. Oh yes. How my goal was, I'm not going to, the, the people who work for me are not going to have to deal with this. I'll deal with it, but I want to make sure I put them in the best light. So how did you find leadership at headquarters and how did it, did it translate well when you went to the field or did you, was it more of a, I mean, you kind of figured it out and you kind of find what your leadership style is regardless of what headquarters are doing for you. So I would say it's probably more the second. I enjoyed the experience, you know, managing the programs. That mm-hmm. was great. Um, we actually had, of course, at the NCIJF, NCIJTF, there are so many different agencies there. So um, I got to work with Department of State, go over to Japan a few times, um, work with the Japanese government and help them start writing their cyber policy. So some of this was, you know, developing the soft skills uh, of working in inter- internationally. And that was really helpful when I did have a squad to run. Uh, I found the overall experience to be really good because I had really good support. If you're part of a good support structure, it's great. Uh, um, Bob Casey was a great person 
for me to work under as as an SSA. And I had Kevin Colby too, who's mm-hmm. who's a good ASAC, uh, you know, to work with and a good guy just generally. Uh, um, when some of that changed to subsequent leadership, uh, the experience was was not necessarily as good. If you have an ASAC that is out for you or, you know, doesn't necessarily understand what you you do, or in my case, I had a one-two punch. I had the one ASAC that wanted to get some cyber experience and couldn't have a cyber supervisor who knew more than him there because when he said, hey, go do these things, it didn't make a lot of sense. I would say, hey, boss, those things don't make a lot of sense. I'll still do them, but you now know they don't make sense. (laughs) Right. And and so he's like, yeah, you know, this is a great time for you to uh, to go over to work counterterrorism <laughs> and for you to be the supervisor in counterterrorism with no specific previous experience uh, working CT. So uh, I recognize that now for what it was. It, it, initially, I believed that, hey, this is this great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but good opportunities when people are making them for you, they come with a plan and, and they see a future. Uh, in this case, that that was that was not the case. That was a very different plan that they had than the one that I wanted. And and you never became an ASAC, correct? I did not. And why not? So let me, that's an interesting question because neither did I. I mean, for different reasons probably. But so you obviously did the headquarter time, so you got the supervisor role. And then you had to got yep. to a point where it's either step up or step down. What yes. did, what made you decide to step down rather than go the fifteen route and, and continue on? Um, I'd have. Had a couple of conversations um, with leaders, you know, uh, ASAC, SAC, and uh, SAC said, "Hey, here's something you need to think about. Um, you need to do what's best for your family. You can go anywhere you want in the FBI. You can do pretty much anything that you want to do as far as your talent will take you. But don't go because somebody else tells you they need you or how great you are. You need to go because it makes sense for mm-hmm. you. It's what you want to do. You go where you want to go." Uh, and I never found something that I would like to do more than live in Dallas. So I could have gone anywhere else. You know, I, I was ASAC qualified, right. I did all the things that I needed to do and, you know, had all the different leadership experience, things that you need to do. And I was involved with the LDP program as well. So to get back to your question about leadership style and finding that leadership style, um, I wanted to get access to some training that the FBI had. And and uh, Renee McDermott, she was like, I, I know I had known her. She was in Dallas. I have a lot of respect for her still do. And uh, she said, hey, I, I might have something for you. That's great. So I'm thinking I'm going to get something, you know, email, something along those lines. No, what it is is uh, I show up at Quantico and I'm going to be one of the new facilitators for the LDP program. So getting to see some of the behind the scenes in that and, and working with content creators, uh, uh, Cindy DeWitt, who, you know, Dr. Cindy DeWitt, uh, who basically wrote all of the content for that and being able to explore my own leadership style in, uh, in a laboratory setting, if you will, with other leaders and really talking that through and figuring out what to do and why and why I do those things and understanding uh, the microscope that you're under when you are a leader and that nobody cares what you're going through as a leader, right? What they care about is how well you lead. Mm -hmm. Did you find it helped prep you for your post-bureau life? Absolutely. Uh, I'm still using some of the same things that that I learned in facilitation, um, just how to resolve problems and issues and, you know, the big, you know, there's a lot of metaphysical kind of things, right? Like what's the problem when the problem isn't the problem kinds of questions, right? That people get annoyed with. But if you start to work through that question, uh, it can be very helpful to start identifying and getting people to say the thing that they want to say 
but a lot of times they're reluctant to say. So very, I think it's very useful. So let's talk about your post bureau career. So you work for Armor Defense. Talk about what I they do. what they do, what their specialty area is. Um, you know, you're a cyber evangelist. What exactly that means for them? Uh, so talk about your yeah. company. Uh, so Armor uh, Armor Security is a security company, cybersecurity company. Started off as uh, Firehost, so firewall and hosting way back in the day when, of course, you didn't have firewalls and hosting together. And so moving from that into protecting workloads in, in the private cloud and, and now expanding out not only that, but having options for protection and XDR, uh, extended detection uh, response uh, and uh, security operations in both public and private cloud. So it is a cloud first uh, company, cybersecurity company. So that um, the leadership there and the opportunity there and, and having folks that are focused on outcomes more so than focused on, on what is being sold. Those are the reasons why I decided to come on board. And uh, they looked at my background and uh, the contacts that I had, and I was like, you know, you might make for a good cybersecurity evangelist. And I'm like, what? What's that? <laughs> and uh, they're like, we're not really sure, but you're going to do it. And so I've been paving my own way to a certain extent, uh, raising the awareness about cybersecurity, um, and and hopefully demystifying cybersecurity. And we work in the business. We're very familiar with the terms. We've got a lot of experience, 20 years plus, 40 years more between us. Uh, and that's not the same for most of the practitioners. So, right. so how do we bridge that gap? How do we talk about cybersecurity in a way that people who are not cybersecurity professionals care uh, about their behavior, hygiene, whatever you want to call it online? And how do you convince those small and medium-sized companies you talk to about the importance of cybersecurity? And we talked a little bit before we start recording about cyber leadership, right? And most of yeah. these small companies don't have, they don't have a cyber leadership and they don't know what it even would look like. And even the big companies, you know, your cyber leadership is largely your CISO and those guys end up just being scapegoats when the bats, I mean, I would, I would hate to be the CISO of progress soft solutions today, this week for, from the move it issues, but that's a side oh, story. Yeah. But so how do you, when you talk to com small company, what do they, what's their response to, well, we don't really need it. We don't think we have, you know, is it, is it the whole, we don't have anything anyone would want, no one would target us? Is it still that mentality? I think that's a part of it. A lot of companies are focused on what their customers are going to ask them for, and they want to have good answers for that. Um, but good security for the sake of good security is like uh, good fitness for the sake of fitness, right? As opposed to, you know, my doctor told me I need to walk more, I need to drink less coffee or something along those lines. So absent some external factor that tells people, hey, you really need to care about this, getting people to care is is really, really difficult because we are, you know, we're practitioners of this. We are inundated in, in this environment and other folks just aren't. And so the big question for me is if you want to be good or if you want to be great. And if good is good enough for you, then maybe, you don't need to pay as much attention to cybersecurity. Uh, my job at that point in time is to help people understand what the risks are as it relates to those decisions. So are you the cyber evangelist for your family members too? Every time the mouse doesn't work or the printer can't connect their printer to the Wi-Fi, they call you and say, why can't my, why isn't my printer working? I am the first call that people make, <laughs> as I'm sure you are <laughs> yeah. too. Yep, exactly. Uh, so let's talk cyber evolution a little bit. How, where do you see all of this going? Or, you know, it's hard to predict the future. Obviously, we've 
we've seen it move from, you know, in, in 99 and 2000, it was kind of just of a nuisance and you had DDoS and some of that kind of stuff. You had the website defacements and then you had IPR issues and nation, rise of nation state and all that kind of stuff. So where do you, obviously with AI machine learning, how bad do you predict it's going to get? And, and then once you've kind of thought what that evolution will be as an evangelist, how do you evangelize to people to pay attention? Um, well, so the future first, let's take that question first. Uh, most of what we've seen have been impacts for uh, data, either confidentiality or availability. Mm -hmm. We have not seen data integrity attacks really yet where that's the issue where, you know, the fact that somebody is there, you don't detect, um, they don't take your data offline. They don't encrypt it. They don't do anything to it. Uh, they just, they just change it in a way. And then you have no ability to detect what was changed and you can't determine the integrity. That's the thing that really scares me. Right. So, um, everything else we've been bouncing back and forth. I mean, web defacements, Oh, my data is not available. This is the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and now it's like, well, everybody's seen my data and we have all these data leaks and we have breaches and, and that's really about the confidentiality and a lot less about the integrity. So that's the only thing that we haven't really seen people go after. And I think as we continue to constrict uh, those other areas, we're going to start to see data integrity attacks that are going to, that are going to accompany the others as well. So um, uh, the company I was working at before I came here, we had seen uh, an adversary that aspirationally wanted to do something. And what the adversary had aspirationally wanted to do was steal all the data, but only release a portion of the data. And the portion of the data they're going to release were going to be that of the minorities. And they were going to tell people that minorities had gotten less protection than the non-minorities at this company. So now you're fighting a couple of different things here, right? And, mm -hmm. and how do you, if you're the, if you're the CEO of that company, you have to make a statement. And this is what the adversary said, and they're backing it up with the data that got released. Man, you've got two, three, or four problems that are compounding each other. That's a great point about the integrity. Have you written anything on LinkedIn about that? Because that would be a fabulous, like just a, you know, three minute read document on LinkedIn I, that I would think would get a lot of traction simply because it's like, it's not even people, it's not, I haven't thought of it that way. And it's not something people have thought about. It's a great point. Uh, and, and it really kind of, with the whole thing on misinformation now, right? That's, that's, yes. that's kind of, that's an integrity thing, clearly. Yes. And you're, it, I think that's a great point that it's coming. So you should, you should write something on that. I, I would public, I would help you publicize it if I could. You know what, uh, that you bring up a good idea. I brought that uh, in front of some forensicators as they like to call themselves last year. They're like, ah, I think you're all wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll just keep my crazy ideas to myself, but it's, it's effective. It'd be almost impossible uh, for an organization to be able to defend against something like that because they're only, uh, well, most people don't have security that they're proud of because if they did, they would have something on their website <laughs> right, saying, they'd sell it. This is, these are the things that we do, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, we yeah. do this and it's, it's, a, it's a feature of security, kind of like a car company, a Subaru talks about how safe their cars are, right? Everybody, everybody makes relatively safe cars, but only Subaru says, hey, this is, this is a feature that we're going to use to sell. Well, that's great. Uh, Miguel, any last final thoughts? Uh, you can find Miguel at LinkedIn, Miguel Clark. Um, he's easy to find. So just look for retired, retired FBI, Miguel Clark, cyber evangelist. Uh, any other social media platforms that you're prevalent on? Instagram, Twitter? Any I am not. Of, no Twitter? You're not no. a Twitter? Not a Twitterer? You know, I have a presence on Twitter, but I have, you know, 
because the way the app is, yeah. if you're not on Twitter every day, then you're like, oh, wow, this is from like a year ago. And I've got to scroll for like seven minutes to right. get to what happened today. I have zero followers and that's the way I like it. I just want, I'm just there to read. I'm not, I don't comment. I don't do any of that kind of stuff. I just, and then and it's, but yeah. So anyway, so any final thoughts, throw them out there for me. Uh, let's see. Um, final thoughts. So for me, if I were to kind of sum up uh, the direction that, well, sum up what my thoughts are about cybersecurity as an evangelist is that we can go from a lot of victims today to no victims tomorrow, um, primarily by turning our victims into combatants, right? If, if you have, and you're taking some actions uh, that allow you to be able to resist in a meaningful way for any of these encounters online, um, then we can do away with the victimization because uh, you know if you and I happen to find ourselves in an altercation somewhere we wouldn't consider ourselves to be the victim of of whatever happened right we would consider ourselves to have gotten into the to an altercation mm -hmm. and so that's a mindset shift and so if we can get away from being victims uh, acting like victims thinking like victims uh then I think that we're going to start to see resilience become more important for organizations more so than security. And I think that's our way out of, of the problem that we're having right now. That's great. Well, Miguel, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your time and you need to start a podcast. You have a fantastic radio voice, podcast voice. Well, thank you very much. I, I owe it all to this great microphone that I'm using, not unlike yours. <laughs> there you go. All right. Thanks so much again. All right. Take care. So once again, I want to thank Miguel Clark for coming on and talking to me on the Cyber Guy podcast. I think you can tell by his voice, he should be a podcast host. So as always, I want to thank you for downloading and listening to the podcast uh, on all your podcast providers. Feel free to hit subscribe, leave us, leave a uh, review or a rating. Feel free to tell your friends. And if you have thoughts, comments, or suggestions on the podcast, if you have ideas for other uh topics, other guests, feel free to email me, Darren at the cyberguy.com, cyber spelled C-Y-B-U-R. You can also follow me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash I-N slash Darren Mott. I now have an Instagram and Facebook profile. You can find me there on Instagram. It's the cyber guy. And on Facebook, it's just Darren Mott or look up Gold Shield Cybersecurity. You'll find me at either one of those particular locations. As you go through your week, no knowledge is protection. If you can understand the threats targeting you, you can assess your risk proceed wisely. Thanks again for listening. And we will be back with episode 101 pretty soon.